Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the latest in Natural Gas World series of Canadian Gas Dialogues webinars leading up to our in-person live event on September 29th at the Calgary Petroleum Club, which is moving ahead under the new COVID protocols and restriction exemptions announced by the Kenny government last evening. Uh, today's webinar is looking at innovation, and I am coming from uh, my home office outside Calgary, and because of innovation, we can do that these days, and we've been doing that for the last 19 or 20 months, it seems like forever. Uh, but in the spirit of reconciliation, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that I am uh, living and working and occasionally playing on the traditional territories of the Sutina and Stony Nakoda First Nations of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which includes the Kainai, Piccany, and uh, Siksika First Nations and uh, the also the uh, Métis Nations Region 3. With that, uh, I would like to turn things over to uh, Julie Goudreau, who will moderate today's webinar. And I will... Who's coming to get who? <laughs> and I, I will be back at the end of the... Uh, at the end of the webinar to uh, wrap things up. Uh, with that, over to you, Julie. Thank you, Dale. So good morning, everybody. My name is Julie Gaudreau, as Dale mentioned. I'm the Executive Director, IGRC 2024, which is the International Gas Research Conference that will be held in Banff <laughs> in 2024. So for those who don't know what it is, it is a signature event for the global industry to discuss research, development, and innovation. So just to give you some context, the Canadian Gas Association was selected to host the conference by the International Gas Union. This is the industry association, which represents the global gas value chain. And we want to make the conference all about innovation. So from now until IGRC 2024, our efforts will be focused on ongoing activities to drive the dialogue in a favorable way for the sector. Hello, Paul. And our objective is simple. Uh, we want to profile and enhance natural gas innovation through the gas value chain. So we're going to, uh, to do that domestically and on the global stage. So we want to build momentum leading up to the conference. And to do so, uh, we're working with trade associations at upstream, midstream, downstream. We're also engaging with other industries to have an ongoing conversation around innovation. And um, in preparation for the Canadian Gas Dialogue uh, on September 29th, we wanted to have um, we wanted to have today like a quick uh, spotlight on the state of innovation across the value chain. So I'm delighted to have with us uh, today three VP from the associations that represents the value chain. Um, so we have Shannon Joseph, uh, VP Government Relations and Indigenous Affairs at Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Hello, Shannon. Hi. Uh, we have uh, Jim Campbell, VP Business Environment at Canadian Energy Pipeline Association. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Julie. Thanks for having me. 
pleasure. And uh, my colleague, Paul Chelyak, VP Strategy uh, and Delivery at Canadian Association. Hello, Paul. Hi, great to see you all. Thanks, Julie. Thanks. So we have a number of questions for them as we prep for the Canadian Gas Dialogue and as we begin to roll out our IGRC 2024 agenda. Uh, so I'm going to start with Paul, uh, my colleague, with my first question. So Paul, I'd like to hear your perspective on what can the upstream, midstream and downstream do to collaborate and drive further natural gas innovation? And maybe another question as well. So what specific markets hold the most opportunities? Over to you, Paul. Great. Thanks, Julie. And thanks so much for pulling this together. Um, IGRC is an exciting initiative. Um, as an association, we are uh, fully supporting uh, your quest to deliver a world-class conference in Banff in 2024. And so for all those uh, on the line today, we very much look forward to, to seeing all of you in Banff. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll start with an initiative we, we created at CGA in 2016, and that's our, our Natural Gas Innovation Fund. And for those not familiar, um, it started out as a granting organization. And so what NGIF does under its granting capacity is it works with early stage technology companies. And it grants dollars to pre-commercial gas technologies, and it aims to get them into a commercial readiness status. So that carried on for two to three years, and then it was realized that there's more to this than just granting. And so excitingly, NGIF launched two new initiatives, um, both a venture fund, and they've raised $50 million for that venture fund, which is actually taking equity positions in technology companies. Further to that, NGIF has launched an emissions testing center. So this is a state-of-the-art, really interesting project in Alberta where technology companies can collaborate at an actual wellhead site to trial and test different uh, system technologies and really look at it on the ground to say, how do these technologies perform in the field? And what can we learn by collaborating with other technology companies at a single site? So that's sort of where we're at with NGIF. What's unique about it, uh, Julie, is that it is the first, as we know, uh, technology fund in the world that spans all the way from wellhead through to the burner tip and capturing carbon capture utilization and storage. And so that kind of collaboration between producers, midstream and downstream companies is really part of the, the secret sauce of NGIF. And perhaps one of the most interesting things we've learned is what matters to the upstream also matters to the downstream. What matters to the downstream also matters to the upstream. And if you asked us five years ago, do you think producers are going to have a keen interest in downstream technologies? We probably would have looked at that and said, maybe not. But surprisingly, uh, in a good way, we're seeing that across the value chain, there's these common threads of interest. And hydrogen is one, CCUS is another. And so we're really excited about that. And so John Adams runs the Natural Gas Innovation Fund, and I encourage people to, to take a look at that. In terms of markets, I mean, Look, for utilities, um, residential and commercial markets are, are fundamental to what they do. Um, we have 20 million customers across the country. And so ensuring that those markets are well-preserved and their needs are met, for us, that's a real, a real key focus. Most certainly our industrial base uses the most natural gas um, and they are a critical market for the utility space. 
Um, but they're often very sophisticated operators. And so the technology needs of an industrial client are really best understood by that client. And so for us in the utility space, we focus a bit more of our attention on that residential and commercial market. So perhaps with that, I'll, I'll pass it on, Julie, thanks. Thank you, Paul. It's very interesting. And that's why we want to showcase the work, the amazing work that NGIF is doing and has done at the IGRC 2024, because this is unique, as you said. Shannon, I, would, I don't know if you would like to add something to what Paul mentioned, what would be your perspective on that? Sure. So, you know, in the upstream, I think the first um, opportunity or, or the most important opportunity is to enhance the collaboration on innovation that's already going on. Um, in the natural gas space, um, the Clean Resource Innovation Network, or CRIN, has been an important place of collaboration for, for companies, um, for companies even with other parts of, of the industry, with academia, um, to leverage investments around uh, clean technology. And our members are some of the biggest clean technology spenders um, in the country. Uh, and some of what we've seen has have already positioned Canadian upstream gas to be some of the lowest emission in the world. Um, but there are further opportunities in, in methane capture and electrification um, that, that members are exploring. So, you know, there was a, there was a spirit developed uh, in the oil sands world around we don't compete on safety and we don't compete on environment. And I think that same spirit um, in the natural gas space and in the innovation space um, continues to be at play. Uh, on the market side, I think there are, there are opportunities in, in residential industry um, and in terms of export, you know, um, as, as the country looks to reduce its emissions um, and reduce dependence, for example, of remote communities on, on higher emitting fuels, I know Quebec and Ontario are both pursuing opportunities to enhance natural gas access in remote communities, more energy, lower emissions, more affordability and reliability. Um, so that's a positive thing and that's an important role for lower emission Canadian oil and gas, um, natural gas in this case. Um, and in energy intensive industries, and there's been a lot of discussion uh, around this as, as a lot of different policies have rolled out over the past um, few years, there are, are limits to some of the opportunities for electrification in industry and, and again, natural gas has a really important role um, to play where there's this need for high energy density to displace uh, higher emission fuels. So uh, that's an important role again um, for lower emission uh, Canadian natural gas. But I'd say the biggest ex the biggest opportunity is in the LNG export space. It's a big opportunity in terms of uh, global emissions reduction, but it's also a big opportunity because it's a space where there's a lot of global demand for natural gas. The International Energy Agency um, anticipates that out to 2040, we'll see an increase of 30% um, to natural gas demand globally. And that's, you know, going to supply close to a quarter of global primary energy. Um, that's enormous. And, and it's revenues that are really critical to businesses being able to invest in the research and in the innovation and then in the deployment at commercial scale of innovation. And so capturing some of these markets and Canada coming into the space to play that role um, is going to be really important. And what's exciting in natural gas uh, is not just the environmental innovation opportunity, but also opportunity for social innovation and partnerships. Um, there's been a lot of discussion uh, with the LNG Canada 
project of their partnerships uh, with the Heisla uh, Nation and Chief Crystal Smith has, has spoken in, at a number of events over the past few years, speaking about these new ways of working together between the business world and indigenous communities, creating opportunities for prosperity, for training, um, for uh, wealth generation. And uh, just recently this past July, the Nishka Nation announced that they want to build a $10 billion liquefied natural gas export facility in their territory. And they have partnerships um, with two Calgary-based LNG companies. And so I think, you know, that international export opportunity creates an important opportunity for that enhancement of innovation in Canada, but also these really interesting and exciting social uh, partnership and other types of, of opportunities, which um, are important to companies and important to Canadians. Thank you so much, Shannon. And you, Jim, would you like to add something or comment on what Paul Shannon raised? Sure. Um, and, and it was interesting that Shannon used four words that we use very often in, in the midstream, um, that we don't compete on safety. Um, and then she went on to, you know, we don't compete on a lot of things like innovation, um, like making our, our, our industries better in so many ways. Um, and I think that that spirit does extend itself into, into innovation. I think we think it's essential that the, the entire gas value chain work together to drive innovation. Um, you know, uh, our natural gas pipeline network, our delivery system is highly integrated. Changes to the product can't be done in a vacuum. So any changes of composition of the product upstream of the consumer, such as blending hydrogen, is, is going to impact end users. And so we're going to need to work together. Um, and I think that we are, uh, you know, I, I do like Paul want to plug IGRC, SEPA is a sponsor and a number of SEPA members are as well. And we see the importance of, of working together with our partners uh, in the distribution uh, area to uh, to make sure that, uh, that we're all making this system better. Um, you know, in terms of the market that holds the greatest opportunity, um, I think industry and and government policy should not be overly focused on one market. Uh, the opportunities that we see today, as we know, the world is is changing quickly and ever changing. Um, so the opportunities we see today, whether it's blending hydrogen into the system or distribution or LNG export are not necessarily going to be the opportunities of tomorrow. We need to be able to respond quickly to changes in the market and advancements in technology. And, and uh, I think probably later on in the discussion, we might get into the role of of regulation and government policy and in enabling our industries to respond to those opportunities quickly. Thank I'll, you, Jim. That's fine, that's fine. So I, it, it's very interesting, like everybody is talking about, we do not compete, but we work together to drive innovation. And um, and I can see that uh, with you know the IGRC 2024, with our planning, so uh, thank you all for working together and working with me to make that a huge success. So my next question would be to, uh, to you, Shannon. Uh, what do you think is the single uh, barrier to, um, uh, the biggest barrier to natural gas innovation and what would be, you know, uh, the top solution? Just unmuting myself there. Um, so, you know, I think an important um, barrier to innovation 
um, today is just around um, certainty in the business environment. Um, as I you know, spoke to earlier, in order for, for companies to invest in innovation, to deploy innovation at commercial scale, um, we need investors to, to believe in what we are doing and what we can do and what those products and technologies can do uh, for Canada and for the world. Um, and I think that um, we need to work together as industry, we need to work together <coughs> with government to correct any perceptions in the, in the international marketplace in particular about um, our desire as a country to, to see some of these opportunities, to see some of these international opportunities. Um, I think there's also a lot of work for us to do um, around um, creating uh, a less, um, a less uh, politicized business environment. A lot of um, the important processes for, for technology moving forward and being deployed, for infrastructure being developed, that's really critical to some of these changes. Uh, including some of those future switches that um, you know Jim mentioned, like hydrogen, um, is getting that infrastructure developed. And right now, these places become a place of policy debate instead of discussions about the merits of the project and the merit of the opportunities they create. Um, and so, there's more work we can do there. Um, and you know, there's a lot of changes going on um, in terms of uh, countries and in terms of Canada. Um, raising ambition around uh, climate and a lot of our systems are designed um, based on, for example, a $50 a ton carbon price, which may now go to a, a different level. And so being able to stay on top of those things, um, to have crediting systems that work, all of these things uh, are going to be really important to businesses having the certainty to know, okay, these are the mechanisms I can use to um, make the economics of my innovative project work so that I can have confidence to move forward, make those investments and deliver uh, those kinds of results. And, you know, even though the world is changing a lot and there's lots of, uh, of different policies going on internationally, there's lots of things that we can do to make those domestic systems clearer and better um, and to send those better domestic signals. Thank you. Paul, just, I yes, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, in, in terms of the innovation space, um, you know, the innovators that, that we've talked to over the years, uh, Julie, have said to us, our single biggest challenge is process. And some cases, these people are, are quite literally in their garage working on a next generation technology. They are entrepreneurs, maybe three staff. They might be by themselves. And when they go to any website, be it government or industry, and they click open the application form, it's daunting, right? It's, it's 40 and 50 pages, and that's to secure, to secure a couple hundred thousand dollars. And they're thinking, I don't have time to do that. So like money is actually not the challenge. There's lots of innovation dollars out there, be them public or private. Of course, more is always better, but there's lots of money to be had. And so one thing that, that the NGIF team has done is sort of a process harmonization exercise where they have a trusted partner relationship with departments or provincial agencies. And when they screen a technology and they say it meets all of our criteria, A, B, C, environmental performance, management team, they do the due diligence and then they take that and they can swap um, due diligence with those agencies. And so for the entrepreneur, 
they fill out one form and it's accepted or recognized by a series of others. So that's that's from on the ground experience, process harmonization is key. For the industry, I think our biggest thing is, let's tell the stories from a human perspective, right? And I remember meeting with a senior uh, decision maker and said, we're from the natural gas industry. He said, oh, you're the industry that likes to confuse people, right? You talking gigajoules and M cubed and MMBS, you know, like all these kind of things. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's partially true, right? So how do we tell the innovator's story such that it resonates with Canadians? And so whether it's a new fireplace or a new natural gas truck or an LNG liquefaction technology, how do we take a page out of the consumer products industry and actually show people using technologies, people adopting technologies? You think of the new iPhone that was released last week. We don't have that budget, but they make a spectacle and a show out of it, right? And they connect it to the human, to the consumer. And so I think there's something we can learn from that when we're trying to talk about innovation and pursue innovation and communicate innovation. Let's talk about the people using the innovation, not just the magical widget that might be a complicated engineering feat. So that's just some feedback for, for the discussion. Jim, would you like to add something? Because I, I think like tell the story that kind of Canadian and move away from industry focused jargon. I think this is key. I don't know if you would like to add something on that. Um, well, I might. Uh, I'll get there in a minute, but you know, I, I think from the from the midstream industry perspective, and and you know, we tend to build big projects. So when I think about you know what's what's the biggest barrier that we face to innovation or or you know just to delivery, um, I think from a transmission pipeline perspective, the single biggest barrier we face is the complexity and inefficiencies in Canada's regulatory system and the impact it has on investments in the industry. And, and Shannon touched on investment and, and our reputation abroad as a place to uh, to uh, put your money. Um, you know, I'm just looking at some uh, data right now from a report we did in 2019 and the data we had, uh, the last data we had was from 2016 for uh, equivalent pipeline applications in the United States and Canada. Um, took more than twice as long in Canada to get an approval as it did in the United States. And, and we're seeing a lot of that now. Okay, so that's mega projects, and you could argue that okay, well, there's not so much about innovation. But uh, you know, Paul and I had a discussion a number of months ago, and maybe he remembers it about um, you know, okay, so we want to put hydrogen into the uh, to the natural gas stream for distribution. Um, now that requires approval um, from regulators in the provinces and, and all of these regulators are economic regulators. They're not environmental regulators. So they look at the cost and, um, you know, they can't really look at the cost to improve environmental outcomes and, and roll that cost into the race base. So we need to look at how our regulatory systems are structured, um, to enable innovation. Um, there's lots of government programs out there to, to enable innovation. Um, but often they, uh, they are stymied by the uh, the regulatory processes and regulatory regimes that are already in place, and so that's a that's a lot of work that's going to have to uh, to happen. Uh, you know, I think um, one of the mechanisms for it is the, the hydrogen strategy for Canada working groups. Uh, they're looking at that, uh, and hopefully uh, throughout the value chain, we can start to look at how we enable innovation for. You know, better environmental outcomes um, uh, and uh, and uh, help advance our industries. 
Thank you, Jen. Shannon, did you, did you want to like add something to what Paul said about telling the story like in a way that will be able to be digestible for the consumer, the general public? No, I think uh, the stories are, are key. And I think the, Paul has access to more human stories because he works more directly with customers. Uh, I, my members sell to, to Jim's members or <laughs> my, my members are upstream of all of these people. Um, and so uh, it's, a different, uh, it's a different world. But I think, you know, to, the, to, to what I was mentioning earlier, some of our stories are around these partnerships. Canada has goals around reconciliation. We have goals around environment and um, our companies can innovate um, for many things at the same time. And uh, we are doing transformative things on environment. We should be talking about that. We should be talking about the way energy has changed lives and it can change lives overseas and that role Canada can play. Um, but you know, these partnership stories um, that I was mentioning, whether it's with the Heisla or whether it's with um, between some, um, some of our companies and, and the nations uh, here in Alberta, uh, we these are important parts of, of transforming and creating the kind of society and innovation we want. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm there with Paul. Thank you, Shannon. So um, let's move on with uh, my next question. So to Jim, um, so from your perspective, uh, have net zero emission reduction targets changed uh, the scope and nature of the innovation investments across the gas value chain? Uh, yeah, I think they have. You know, um, in our sector, there have been numerous announcements by, by SEPA members and others on projects that are going to make significant contributions to achieving Canada's net zero ambitions. And it's important to note that many of these projects were announced prior to the government making any official net zero commitments. Um, companies across the natural gas value chain are leading the way in innovation in space and you know, environmental action, action leads to better economic outcomes for these companies as well. So it's, we didn't necessarily need the, need the push from government, though it helps. Um, but, you know, the, the announcements that SEPA members have made include projects in both, you know, what you would call the traditional lines of business, uh, the, that our members pursue transmission pipeline projects and the, the common substances transported in them and some new lines of business as well. But, you know, I, I first feel the need to point out that and I think Shannon and Paul have addressed this a little bit too, is that Canada's natural gas and oil are produced to world leading ESG and regulatory standards. And we can help other countries lower their emissions by exporting our natural gas and oil and displacing higher emissions fuels in other parts of the, country, the world. And one way to do this, uh, Shannon definitely mentioned this, would to be build would be to build more than one LNG plant on Canada's coast, and you know, from a selfish perspective, maybe some new pipelines too. But you know, in, in terms of our members, there are the simple things: uh, they're reducing emissions through more efficient operations. Um, they're installing more efficient engines and compressor stations. They're capturing and diverting methane when they're maintain when they're doing pipeline maintenance. Um, rather than venting it to the atmosphere, as used to happen. Uh, they're using more sophisticated leak detection. They're considering electrification of compressor stations. Um, <clears throat> but there's there are some sort of more innovative, I guess, projects that are, aren't just um, incremental innovation, but are stepping outside what members have normally done. 
2019, a couple of great examples I can think of, TC Energy launched two first of their kind power generation projects uh, with, in partnership with Emissions Reduction Alberta, they're developing the world's first waste heat recovery power generation facilities that will use, I have no idea what this is, supercritical carbon dioxide to capture waste heat from pipeline compressor stations that is then used to generate electricity for the gas grid or for the power grid. And uh, this has enough potential to generate enough electricity to power 10,000 homes. That's from two pipeline compressor state stations. It'll also reduce GHG emissions by about 44,000 tons a year. Also in 2019, ATCO, working with a number of partners, um, tested the opportunity of creating renewable natural gas or RNG from wood waste. And this is a largely untapped renewable resource in Alberta, uh, which accounts for about 50% of the potential supply of RNG here. Um, and that RNG that ATCO and uh, G4 Insights produced was actually injected to, into ATCO's natural gas distribution grid. So this is a big opportunity for Alberta and Canada to diversify the energy mix and, and reduce our GHG emissions. Um, exciting opportunities coming down the, the pipe, as it were. Um, one of those is obviously hydrogen. ATCO announced last year that it's Port Saskatchewan blending project, and they're going to inject up to 5% of hydrogen by volume into a section of the city's natural gas distribution net network. And I know that Enbridge has a similar project going on in Markham, Ontario. A lot of our members are examining their opportunities in the hydrogen space. Um, you know, they're working on the hydrogen strategy for Canada working groups, um, looking at adapting existing infrastructure and building new infrastructure to transport hydrogen. Um, and, and they're eagerly participating in that. And another project in our pipe is pipes is carbon dioxide. Uh, it's not new, obviously, but uh, both Midstream launched their Alberta carbon trunk line uh, last year, and it's capturing CO2 for enhanced oil recovery projects. Um, should capture emissions equivalent to 3 million cars per year. Um, Pemina and TC also announced the Alberta carbon grid uh, three months ago. Um, which will connect the province's largest sources of industrial emissions to a sequestration location in Redwater. And this will capture about 20 million tons per year. Uh, all of this facilitates the production of blue hydrogen from natural gas. And this is a major focus in Alberta's diversification and emissions reduction plan. So I think there's a ton of stuff going on and it's exciting and uh, happy to be part of this industry and working on things like this. It's very interesting. It's like three three key words that can, you know are coming to my mind to define what you said. It's like adaptation from your members, uh, thinking out of the box, and uh, new businesses. So uh, it's great. I don't know, Polly, you know, if you would like to give a uh, downstream perspective or yeah, sure. I mean. Um... Maybe a short plug. Um, we are currently working on on a net zero uh, strategy as an association, and uh, what I can say is we're looking at November this year for for a release of that. Um, we have modeled through a third party firm three pathways to decarbonize buildings in Canada. Um, we're starting with buildings. Industry is more complicated, so so we're sticking with what we know best. And I can say that we've got three really credible costed pathways to meeting net zero emissions in buildings using the gas pipeline system. And that might be a bit of a head scratcher for some people say, well, how can you do that? Well, you'll have to wait till November. But what I can say is it's possible, right? And so 
giving industry the goalposts and saying, go to figure it out, you'll be surprised with what you'll find, right? The creativity and ingenuity in this industry is, is second to none. And so I'm very, very proud of that. But 2050, so it's sort of taken everyone by storm. It's kind of the latest thing. And we've seen this movie before. But let me give sort of three thoughts on this. Um, 2050 doesn't happen without recognition of the consumer, cost, and collaboration. And so on the consumer side, you need capital, right? And so industry and consumers bring and spend capital. 2050 is not a realistic ambition unless you have private industry putting money on the table. So governments can match, governments can lead, governments can support, but you need capital and big capital to make it happen. And so the things that Jim's talking about, these are multi-billion dollar projects. And so you need industry there alongside you in whatever 2050 pathway you have. And so that's critical and that's number one. On the consumer side more specifically, it's about affordability. And so to create and sustain any kind of buy-in on long-term emission reduction targets, you're gonna need the consumer, the voter. If the voter sees that their bills have gone up 20, 30, 50, 100%, it's really hard to keep them, right? I think we're all for improved environmental performance and we're willing to look at that in a creative way, but cost for the consumer is really gonna drive their behavior and uh, their approach and willingness to stick on this train for, for the long haul. So cost is gonna be key. And then collaboration is, is probably an overused term, but, but trying to find some form of alignment, I mean, among federal, provincial, municipal governments on what is the trajectory? What is the ambition? What are the timelines? What are each of those levels of government willing to bring to the table? And that form of collaboration and alignment will then unlock private capital. And so I come back to capital, affordability, and collaboration as kind of the big three. And without any one of those, my sense is that achieving any semblance of a net zero future is going to be particularly challenging. Um, but we're along uh, to do our best. We're along to uh, contribute our, our portion to the overall pie. And uh, in November, we'll hopefully have a pretty good story on what our industry can bring to the table. Thank you, Paul. Julie, I and, think, yeah, go ahead. Shana. Sorry, I just want to jump in on what Paul said because uh, I, I, I liked it. And I think that um, net zero um, obviously is something that all of our companies are, are looking at. What, what can we bring to the table? What types of technologies can work, et cetera? But that, that ambition, which is being discussed internationally, is going to look different in every country. And I think it's important. Um, mindful of these questions of affordability, but also opportunity and jobs, et cetera, that we don't um, preempt what that's going to look like. Uh, you know, the government, uh, well, I won't, I won't speak about governments because we're in an election, but um, the jobs and the technologies and the investments that, that, that Jim was talking about, that Paul's talking about, that my, my members are talking about in terms of what they want to do in their facilities, but also um, in other parts of their operations, as these drive down emissions, capture emissions, these are the green jobs. These are the jobs of the future that Canada wants. These are the things that are going to sustain us in creating the wealth to create the transformations we want to see. 
And so I guess what I'd add is like, we need to make sure that Canada's approach to um, this pathway to net zero is unique, it's Canadian, and it builds on our strengths. On that, sorry, Jim, but but I think affordability has, and speaking about elections, we're not government, we can do that, but um, affordability has risen to the top and remains at the top of voters' minds. And whether you're a millennial or you're not, um, the polling is that number one, since three months before the election up until this morning, affordability and particularly housing affordability dwarfs any other priority that Canadians have right now. And so as industry, we have to think about that. There's clearly a really high temperature in this country on affordability right now. And for both industry and governments, I think we need to look very, very closely at that polling data and think about what that means as we develop our own corporate plans. Um, so I just wanted to, to put a further note out there on the affordability side. Uh, and if I could, Julie, too, because affordability really struck me. And if you've been watching the, the news from Europe, um, Spain, various jurisdictions in particular, and what's going on in terms of electricity prices and uh, electricity generated from natural gas. Um, and you can say that there are geopolitical tensions there that maybe don't exist here in North America, but you know, I think that we need to, in order to ensure affordability for consumers, we need to not lock off potential sources of supply. We need to be providing responsibly produced Canadian natural gas to the world. I mean, um, what you're seeing in Europe now is that uh, national governments are looking at taxing windfall profits uh, from the electricity and, and natural gas producers. Um, because affordability is such a concern, and, and Paul just referenced that it's a concern for Canadians and presumably for Americans too. Um, we can address those, and we can address those in an innovative way um, by bringing more supply to the table. And, um, I thought, you know, Paul's affordability capital and, and alignment, so it was a great way of putting, you know, how we can get to where we need to be. It's very interesting, Jim, because I'm going to jump in as a moderator. Maybe I should not, but I'm a consumer. And we're the four of us on the panel, we're all concerned about cost because ultimately we're all consumer and money that we spend on energy bill is money that we don't have for something else. So I think this is very interesting. Um, I don't know if you would like to continue that conversation or Dale, I know that you're on the background, but um, do we have time to answer any question? Uh, yeah, we have a we have a few more minutes uh, to continue the discussion if you'd like. I'll uh, I'll jump in in about uh, five or eight minutes uh, and and we'll start answering some questions if you'd like. Uh, just a note to the audience to please uh, feel free to post your questions in uh, using the, the questions function and we'll get to them uh, in a few minutes. Thanks Julie. Thank you Dale. So fortunately we have uh, we still have time so that's great we can continue uh, the discussion so I don't know if you would like to continue the discussion on affordability because I think this is key or maybe something else that you would like to go deeper um, to you know continue like on some subject that have been uh, touched uh, so I don't know Paul Shannon or Jim if you would like to jump in. Um, well, I got a, I've got a question for Paul, and I think he 
he referenced it a bit earlier, but you know, <clears throat> Paul, when it comes to advocacy and communications, what can we as an industry do to position natural gas technology solutions and innovation with, with the average Canadian? I mean, you know, uh, I can speak as, you know, the pipeline association, the biggest concern is what's inside the pipe. Um, and I, there's a lot of misconceptions about what's inside the pipe. Um, so I'm just wondering what, you know, you're, you're closer to the consumer. Um, how do we, how do we make Canadians comfortable with, with innovation? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Innovation is all around us. Um, and, and whether it's the new flat screen TV that comes out or the latest game that my kids download on their phone that I then invariably charge $5 for, but, um, <laughs> But, but innovation is, is all around us, and maybe it's unique to the energy industry, maybe it isn't, but for so long we've had really complicated systems that we've tried to directly or indirectly or purposefully or unpurposefully just keep out of Canadians' eyes. Um, you don't put the fork in the plug, you don't do things with gas systems. Like There's reasons we have systems that are are largely kept out of Canadians lives and that's because safety is our first and foremost job every day but at the same time we have to communicate what those systems do for people's lives and so that I think is the trick right is how do you get people interested um, without being too interested and so we did some polling uh, Jim and what it showed us was that 80% of Canadians are familiar with natural gas. They know that it exists, they kind of know what it is. But 70% of those would like to know more. And so that struck us, that people know what it is, but they don't know much beyond the word natural gas, or the words natural gas. And so we took this to a firm who has some behavioral scientists, and their message was, you have to show people using the product in some way. They said, think of Colgate. When Colgate sells you toothpaste, they don't show you the manufacturing plant that's mixing up the big blue drum of toothpaste. They show you someone brushing their teeth with really nice teeth, nonetheless. But that's that consumer products angle that is just so obvious but hard to do. And whether it's McDonald's or any of these big names, they show people enjoying the product in an everyday setting. People that look like you and me, that you say, oh, well, they're enjoying it. That means I might be able to enjoy it too. I think we have more than enough stories. We've got more than enough information. It's just packaging that in a way that when someone says, I'm thinking about a new fireplace, maybe I'll get the gas one because I love the look of the flame. But if you show them people sitting around that fireplace, enjoying it, and do it in a, a deliberate way, I think we have a better chance at connecting our product to the everyday lives of Canadians. And so that behavioral research side, to me, was, was really interesting. It's not something I've dug into before, but um, I'd encourage anyone who's trying to advocate to get a behavioral research scientist, and they can tell you, what do 18-year-olds in Saskatchewan care about? Because they've done that research. What do 55-year-olds in Quebec care about? Because they've done that research and you can really target your message to certain facets of Canadians, um, should that be part of the plan. Thank you, Paul. Shannon, did you, did you want to add something or? 
Um, well, I, you know, I, as I said earlier, I think um, the, the story challenge is, is a real one. And there are so many systems in our, in our society that are invisible that make our lives work. And we, we mostly notice them when they're not there. And so uh, I, but I do think at the same time, we have those strong stories. I think in the upstream, because a lot of, of our opportunity is international, um, it's, it's connecting and connecting that international story to something Canadians can be proud of, um, to the way we do our work, to the difference it makes in the communities, um, and to the difference it can make in other people's lives. I don't think the, the other thing that's invisible to, to Canadians is the energy poverty that exists internationally and what it means not to have energy and the difference that our energy can make uh, in people's lives and make it in a way that is more environmentally responsible. And we've done a lot of testing um, of, of those kinds of messages and looking for ways to bring that, that domestic story together and those lives here that are changed, but also that, that bigger world story because both are part of the role that I think we wanna play and that our innovation uh, can help us play. It's very interesting. And, and, and you, Jim, um, did you ever done such a behavioral um, research or have you done something like that? Or We did something similar to what Paul's talking about uh, a few years ago and updated it a couple of years ago. Was, uh, we called it the B3 research and it's belief-based behaviors. And it's, it's really that, you know, why you think you're acting a certain way isn't necessarily why you're acting a certain way and it's people just to give you a, a weird example is people may say that they're focused on affordability and technology and stuff yet they have the most expensive apple device it's really because at their heart they value that you know they want to be the coolest and things like that and, um so the, i think that's a really bad example but we we have done research like that and and I think to the some of the other research and, and Shannon twigged it with me when she's talking about energy poverty and, and the things we can do overseas, but we don't tell enough about the benefits. We do talk about the benefits for Canadians in having affordable energy, but we don't talk about the Canadians' neighbors who are involved in our industry. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that TD Bank came out with a, a study, um, I think it was in May, about the displacement of 450,000 energy workers in the transition to net zero. And they compared it to uh, manufacturing, how the US Midwest was hollowed out um, during the, uh, the 80s and 90s. And, and it's not at all comparable. Um, you know, the workers in our industries are technologically advanced. Most of them have, you know, if not just a an undergrad degree, many, many of them have graduate degrees in um, technology and engineering fields. And, you know, as our industry evolves and we move towards net zero and we are implementing these exciting projects we've all been talking about, those people are going to drive that. We're not going to be displacing energy workers on a large scale. We're not going to be reskilling them or need to reskill them, I don't think. But what we don't do a great job of is making Canadians, they see us as faceless corporations who you know, make windfall profits off high energy prices, but you know, they're not aware of you know, the 
hundreds of thousands of direct jobs in the industry and the millions of indirect and induced jobs and the impacts that their neighbors, you know, they may not have any connection to the energy industry at all other than paying a bill, but their neighbors probably do. And we aren't telling that story well enough and talking about, you know, how their friends and neighbors are benefiting and how, you know, we're helping the economy come along. Just my little rant. No, it's great. And I, I think that if we, we go back to uh, innovation, innovation, it's always a good, um, you know, it's a good way to talk about stories, about entrepreneurs, uh, startups, about, uh, you know, what we're trying to achieve. And um, it's, it's a positive way to showcase what we're doing and how we, we are part not that we want, but we are part of the solution. Um, so that's why I think that it's key. And uh, if I go back to IGRC 2024, this is going to be a, a, a great um, a great way to showcase uh, all the hidden gems in Canada and elsewhere, what we're doing uh, in, in terms of innovation, gas innovation. So um, I don't know, Dell, if uh, you would like to go with some questions or if uh, we would like to conclude. Uh, no, we've got uh, actually a fairly long list of questions here. Um, I will ask them of the panel in general, unless I recognize something that might be specifically applicable to one or the other of you. The first one is, uh, there was mention of barriers and much that is going on uh, in the gas innovation space to overcome that barrier, those barriers. Uh, this viewer wanted to know that, or wanted to say that he hasn't heard what specifically the industry is doing or needs to do to amplify innovation uh, across the natural gas value chain. Um, so let, let's, I guess, start with Paul first and. Uh, go from there. Yeah, Dale, thanks for that. Um, what the natural gas innovation does is it brings a series of major natural gas utilities around a single table, and it puts a single set of technology options in front of that group. That group looks at them as a group. They decide as a group, they fund as a group, and so you've got millions of potential customers represented by that group of utilities, and so that's a great way of putting a technology into the funnel, right? Because you have multiple receptors who are ultimately your deployment agents as well. So that would be one. And again, the other is just the sharing of information between the upstream, midstream and downstream through the Natural Gas Innovation Fund. So you might be a technology that's dealing with methane and you've designed your widget to detect methane leaks on a pipeline in the downstream but all of a sudden we realized that parlays really well to a well site or to a transmission gate station or somewhere along the system that isn't where it was initially intended for. And so we're kind of stretching these entrepreneurs in some cases to think about how do you deploy your technology, not just where you initially designed it for, but into the other parts of the value chain. So I think through that um, sort of collection of corporate parties sitting around a common table, looking at common technologies, that's a way of getting the technology into market faster, 
and also looking at whether it's bulk buys or bulk deployments. That then helps the entrepreneur scale quickly by increasing manufacturing order sizes and driving costs down. Those are a couple of thoughts. Okay, thanks. Uh, Shannon, this one might be somewhat up your alley. Uh, the question reads, there is some skepticism on uh, CCUS, carbon capture utilization and storage, where carbon tracking and accounting and assurances of, of long-term net CO2 storage monitoring is always a concern. Are there innovations on the software side working on standardizing and tracking carbon? through the CCUS process and improving or automating monitoring of CO2 that is stored underground? Uh, that, that is a really good question and I, I'm, I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge about um, information on the software side, but there is a lot of experience both in Canada and the United States and certainly now Norway builds out its carbon capture um, project um, that you, when you have the right geology, um, the carbon is stored. And um, there, there are systems for monitoring, but I think um, Canada has a lot of the right geology. And, and actually, there's, there's lots of discussion now about accessing that geology so that the, the, those business opportunities to capture uh, emissions can, can move forward. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we have a regime in Canada that is, that is focused on... Um, ensuring performance, ensuring transparency, having the right reporting. Um, and so I think those systems can give confidence um, around uh, how those emissions will be captured just in the same way that it does around, is Canada performing on methane? Are we performing on water and leakage? Are we managing tailings uh, if we're getting into the oil space? Uh, and so I'd say between our regulatory leadership, which has been recognized, uh, although it has issues on the project approval side. Uh, and, um, you know, just having the fundamentals in place, um, we can have a lot of success with this U.S. Uh, can, I, can I jump in, too, because I, I do have a yep. bit of experience on it. I, I used to work for a company that had a fairly major uh, CCUS EOR project in southern Saskatchewan. Um, you know, it's, it's been ongoing in the Weyburn region for... 30 years um, and the carbon is being sequestered and uh, you know University of Saskatchewan has a major study um, and department that's really focused on ensuring that that uh, that carbon is in place uh, the International Energy Agency has been studying the the project for years as well I think the the technology is well understood the geology is well understood though it's far beyond my my area of expertise um, and I don't think that this government would have, you know, put such a heavy emphasis on CCUS um, if they didn't believe it worked. Thanks, Jim. Uh, another question. Uh, how do we improve our repository of case studies that show all the good work that's been done in ways that are easy to understand and consistent with internationally recognized methods of quantifying reduced carbon intensity or tons of CO2 equivalent per year reduced? And that will have to be an open question. Maybe I'll start with that and, and others can jump on. Um, TAP recently released our, uh, our climate change uh, ESG performance, ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Reporting, but it was a focus on climate. 
um, what has happened from an emissions standpoint to date, um, what some of the potential is, and what some of those case study examples are. I think um, one challenge is just getting the stories um, and uh, making it uh, easy for companies to pull those stories together. Sometimes those administrative uh, kind of things are a challenge. And then finding the right ways to communicate them on an ongoing basis and to be a place where more stories can be added as they come online. And I think, you know, as we've all started to take this question of storytelling more seriously and sharing the stories of these innovation successes um, more seriously, um, we're setting up those uh, mechanisms to make it easier to get those things out there for companies to get their stories out there and for Canada's story of innovation uh, in, in the natural gas space to get out there. Anybody else feel like just putting your two cents in? The deal was something that that was recently announced, and it's it's more around um, bringing a collection of actors together to pull off a new type of project. And so, um, one of CGA's members in Quebec is buying what's called responsibly produced gas from a producer in Canada. And there is a technology that's a blockchain technology that quantifies the environmental attributes of responsibly or more responsibly produced natural gas. And in order to get that certified, you need a third party intermediary who's kind of like a, I'll call it an environmental crediting audit firm. And so you have a buyer on one end who says, I'm interested in improving the environmental performance of the natural gas I buy for my consumers. You have a producer that says, I'm willing to invest some money to take some extra steps to go above and beyond you have a technology company who's facilitating the blockchain, but then you have an auditing firm that's involved to make sure that from wellhead to consumer, everyone is doing exactly what they say they're doing. And so this is kind of a new space, right? Um, blockchain for environmental performance of responsibly produced natural gas. Not something I had ever thought of before until we started hearing about this company. So to whoever asked the question, you might want to look into uh, that kind of thing. The RSG, as it's called now, or Responsibly Produced Gas. Um, it's a pretty innovative space, and there's lots of great companies out there that are looking at certifying product on a go forward. Thanks, Paul. Uh, we've got three more questions here, and we've got two minutes uh, to our, our one hour mark, uh, which doesn't isn't really necessarily important, but uh, affordability was mentioned, I think, by Jim, which is obviously a huge concern. Could we also view it as a blessing in disguise, as it might help us in our drive for innovative, uh, for innovation, for innovative, more efficient, but more expensive technologies? Well. I guess uh, Paul mentioned affordability first, but I'll go first. Um, okay, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I, I was trying to deflect, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we're going we're going to have to figure out a way to meet our Canada's ambitions to reduce emissions, and yet still, I mean. Uh, the IEA, every reputable source says that natural gas will be a major part of the energy supply for decades to come. Um, and unless we can figure out a way through, you know, technology and technology in producing it, technology and transporting it, technology and distributing it, um, 
you know, adding things like hydrogen to reduce the, the carbon footprint. But unless we can find a way to do all those things in an affordable manner, I think we're probably, here in Canada at least, going to be cold. I don't know if I'm really answering the question or if I understood it completely, but, you know, necessity is going to drive innovation. Um, and it's going to drive it throughout the value chain and ensure that we continue to deliver affordable natural gas for Canadians and for people outside of Canada. Yeah, I'd say I'd, I'd, I'd want to think about that one at a deeper level. If you think about the consumer, um, if Subway goes to $20 for a foot long, I'm not going to Subway any longer, even if the price goes back down to seven because I'm just gonna think, well, it's gonna go back to 20 as soon as I start buying from you again. And so I get that higher prices can drive innovation, but I think we need to be really careful about the effect of higher prices on consumers and that what that means for your long-term reputation. And so I get the point, I'm just not sure that higher prices are needed for innovation. Innovation is happening in this industry when gas prices were $1.50 and they continue to happen when gas prices are where they are today. So I'm not sure price is the driver for corporate innovation. Um, so I'd want to kind of think deeper about that question. Okay. We have one more question and it's, sorry, Shannon, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add that um, the, the whole notion of affordability um, gets at the whole, the, the fact that solutions need to be adapted and, and are about trade-offs and uh, the cost, cost, affordability, technology, trade opportunities, all of these allow us to tailor a pathway um, to whatever our climate ambition is uh, that, that balances these things. And I, and I think now that we are getting clear about where we want to go on the emissions front, now we can actually get into, well, what does it take to get there? And what is that going to cost and what kinds of infrastructure are needed and what does it mean for consumers and to get those things out there. I really appreciated a, a study that um, two studies that the Ontario Energy Association did both around kind of the use of natural gas and electricity and around pathways to net zero because they really tried to dig into that. Okay, let's let's cost this out. Let's put numbers to this and let's have a conversation around pathways. And so uh, Affordability is um, just one important piece of, of the conversation now that we need to have in terms of pathways. Thanks, Shannon. And actually, that feeds almost directly into our uh, final question here, and it uh, resolves or revolves around the pursuit of net zero and what the costs uh, to consumers will be. Companies have been reluctant to provide details of what those costs could be. Uh, for fear of seeming to be opposed to the targets rather than realistic about the targets. Uh, but as affordability is the number one public issue right now. Uh, and if the risk of energy costs running a lot higher because of those costs, uh, people could get angry and the innovation agenda will be set back. They'll just say, well, we don't want to do it. Uh, how do you create a more open conversation about what the cost of achieving achieving targets like net zero will be? And again, an open question, and that'll be the end. I think we have to start to demand um, cost transparency, Dale. Um, and the reality of that is it's hard, it changes, and it's often scary. 
right? Um, and if you think about a runway to net zero and what might need to be done, um, there aren't actually as many years as you might think. Um, we costed out electrification of 60% of the gas system in Canada about two years ago, and it was between 800 billion and 1.4 trillion. And so, you know, that's just doing 60% of the gas load, and you divide that by 30 million Canadians, and you come up with a pretty hefty number in terms of um, what an average bill would go up per year. I think it was you know, three to four thousand dollars per household, and so that's significant. Um, but these costing scenarios take time. Technologies change, and so you constantly have to update them. But I think the biggest thing that we all can do is just demand of ourselves and of our governments to be as transparent as possible on this. I, I don't think Canadians are scared of it. They just need to know, right? And you can make an informed decision once you know. But until you have the sticker shock, where do you start from, right? Where do you go? And so I think we need to have that initial sticker shock and figure out ways of mitigating that, bringing it down. But we haven't had that yet. So over to Jim and Shannon on this one. I mean, I think that uh, some of the concern around not wanting to get into the cost piece to not um, avoid to avoid being perceived as not supporting the overall goal um, is anchored in, um, you know, I think where the policy issue has lived for a while, which is around persuading people for action. And I think that we're all persuaded and, uh, and the policies are in place and, and we have come to action now and action involves um, people's lives very directly. Energy, is in everything that makes our quality of life possible here and in other parts of the world. It drives every tractor that cultivates every field, that puts food on every table, that heats every home, that mines for whatever new you know, products we want to create in, 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 in terms of new technologies. And so we have to take the conversation out of a space of you know, policy debates and issues and into the practical. Um, and into the people and, and, and have lots of voices at the table. Um, this isn't what, about what companies want or what governments are talking about. This is about everyone's lives and how they will change and what trade-offs we want to make and, and how we will bring those prices down. And, and I think nothing will be achieved if we don't have those conversations because you can't sneak in a change like that. This is like, this is everywhere. I think I think that was really well said by both of you. I think the biggest fear that most people have is the fear of the unknown. Um, and so far, we as corporations, we as policymakers, we as industry haven't been willing to talk about the real cost of these things. Um, but you know, the the polling says that Canadians want action on climate change. They want to reduce emissions. Um, so we need to tell them the real cost of that, and they will make those choices, their choices, based on on factual information, but right now I think they're, they have fear of the unknown, they're scared. So we have to deal with that and deal with it soon. Wonderful, so I maybe Dale, uh, if you allow me, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to thank you for agreeing to participate in this round table and for sharing your thoughts, your perspective on some aspects related to innovation. And uh, 
and I hope that for those who of you watching or watch that you enjoyed the discussion. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Julie, and uh, thanks everyone for taking an hour out of your time this morning. Uh, we hope to uh, we hope it was a, a fruitful discussion. I think there was probably a lot of questions raised in people's minds that uh, they'll have to go away and think about, and uh, hopefully come up with some answers within their own networks of, of how we can innovate our way to net zero in 30 years, which doesn't sound like a lot of time. Um, I'd like to again, thank you all for participating. I'd like to also uh, welcome or welcome you to uh, join us on September 29th at the Calgary Petroleum Club for our, uh, what will be our third Canadian Gas Dialogues. It will be a live in-person event uh, and it promises to be a fairly good discussion on a wide range of topics. Please go to www.naturalgasworld.com to read more about the Gas Dialogues platform and conference. And with that, I would like to thank Julie. I'd like to thank Jim, Shannon, and Paul. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Shannon.